0: If you're anything like me, and you think that music might not sound super fitting to like what this all is, uh, talk to Noah after service, and he can tell you why he him he can tell you why he picked it. Um, let me pray for us. God, thank you for this morning, and thank you for your word. Thank you that we are in your presence. I pray that you would uh, quiet our hearts and focus our minds so that we could receive your words, that you would speak to us. And I pray, God, that, um, that you'd help us to understand, help us to receive it, uh, help us to see your wisdom, help us to see your goodness, and uh, that, that, that we would respond in, uh, in worship and, and love for you and admiration and gratitude and praise. And so we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Alright, good morning once again, if, uh, and, and again, if you're visiting, really glad to have you here with us. If you have your Bible, Song of Songs or Song of Solomon chapter 1, that's where we are. It's in the Old Testament. It's classified as wisdom literature, so Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Song of Songs, like those are all in the, uh, the the wisdom genre, and in this book, we find God's wisdom concerning marriage, uh, what to look for in Uh, choosing a spouse, and how you prepare for marriage, and um, what vulnerability and trust and respect and forgiveness, what those things look like in marriage, and and even has wisdom about um, physical and and sexual intimacy. Uh, We also find in this book an amazing, poetic, beautiful expression of the love that Jesus has for us in the gospel. Uh, that that we are the church we, the church is the bride of Jesus and so there's it's very revealing for the love of God that we have in Jesus and so uh we're we're not going to get very uh into the weeds with uh, here 's like the specific interpretation or the way that the song of songs should be read we'll we 'll touch on various perspectives as, as I talked about last week but if you 're you 're here for the first time um, because like there's there 's different options this could be uh solomon and and his wife and you know their relationship it could be um, a shepherd boy and like a peasant girl, and like this is their love story. Uh, it could be that this is just representative. In in general, for like all marriage, Um, some people read it. I talked about this last week in chronological, like it goes from when they meet to when they get married and then further into their marriage. Um, I don't really, I'm not convinced by that. I think it's more like a a reflection on marriage, so you see different parts of it at different points. Um, And I mean, just because I'm standing up here and you have to listen to me anyways. My view, and, and the way that I kind of understand it, and even though you know I, I, I could be wrong about this, I do believe that Solomon wrote it. I believe that he wrote it as an example of the ideal marriage. Um, this is what the ideal marriage would, would look like, and this is what you'd find in it. Um, he's, he's got the, the wisest human mind there ever was, apart from Jesus, and I think he wrote it as an act of repentance for his own uh, issues, those issues being he had 300 wives and 700 concubines, like kind of big issues. Um, In any case, last week we started reading, we're still in chapter one, we saw uh, the woman taking initiative in their relationship, we saw them express mutual desire for one another, Uh, we saw how she admired his character and his reputation, Uh, she shared some of her insecurities about her own beauty, and how he responds to her in that, in, in a, a really creative way, an affirming way for her. And we are picking up today where we left off in, uh, in chapter 1 and verse 12. That's where we're starting, and we're going to go until chapter 2, verse 7. And so that's our end point. Um, but chapter 1, verse 12 says this, and this is her speaking. While the king was on his couch, my nard gave forth its fragrance, my beloved is to me a sachet of myrrh that lies between my breasts. My beloved is to me a cluster of henna blossoms, in the vineyards of Engedi. Again, uh, we see them in sort of this uh, private setting, in kind of intimate. He's reclining on a couch. It looks like they're reclining together. And uh, and as I said last week, like whether this is actually the king, like the king was on his couch. If that's Solomon or she's just speaking, uh, using that term as like, this is how much I respect him. He is like a king to me. Who knows? I don't think it really changes the, the substance of what God is speaking to us. It is funny, though. Um, this seems to be an increasingly common uh, compliment for men to call them kings. I don't know if you guys are on the internet or not, but if you are, you see it, uh, like, some, like a guy does something good, and everyone's like, you go, king, you know? And like, we love a king who does whatever, um, which is fun, you know? The girls have been called queens for a real long time, and it's, it's, it's about time the men uh, got some special treatment. Uh, we never get that, right? Uh, while the king is on his couch, she says, my nard gave forth its fragrance. Nard is a, an expensive perfume. And we actually see it mentioned elsewhere in the Bible, in the best-known place, is when Mary, uh, Mary of Bethany, uh, assaults, (laughs) anoints. She doesn't assault anyone. I don't know where that word came from. I didn't write it down. Uh, When she anoints the feet of Jesus. And so John chapter 12, uh, Mary therefore took a pound of expensive ointment made from pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So nard, uh, sometimes called spike nard, it's, um, it's uh, the same thing. It's made from a flower, and uh, and, and it is, I guess, because it, it's so hard to kind of extract a lot of it, it is very expensive. And so Mary has a pound of it that's probably representing a good portion of her personal wealth. Uh, and You know, if you keep reading from this, like Judas gets all mad because he's like, well, we could have sold that and uh, given it to the poor, and he just wanted to steal all the money. So, uh, you know, Jesus is like, leave her alone. She's done something beautiful for me. That's what he says. Um, And I don't mean to draw a connection from the Song of Songs to this moment as like, you know, this part of the song is predicting that. Like, I don't think that's right. I think that all it does is it helps us to understand how. Precious, this stuff is. Um, and, you know, God created us with a sense of smell. You ever wonder why he did that? It's because he loves us. <laughs> you know, he wants us to be able to enjoy good things and enjoy good, good smells. And um, this stuff is highly valued because of the, you know, the, the pleasant aroma that it creates. And I guess at this time it was, it was hard to find things that smell that good. We live in a different time. It's not so hard for us and so I just want you to know that it's okay to wear deodorant. Um, I think everyone should do it. You know, I think that God approves of it, and I don't care if it's like Old Spice or Degree or like whatever it is. This is not about anyone in particular. You got all quiet. I'm not calling anyone out. I just think everyone should be encouraged. It's good to smell nice. Um, Back to the song. Uh, the, these two are alone. She's wearing this precious perfume. Uh, and, you know, it, it's such a precious thing, and it's just them together, and she still chooses to wear it. I think that tells us how much she, she loves this guy, that even when it's just me and you, like, it's not a waste for me to put this on. Like, I want you to enjoy being with me as much as you possibly can. I, I think, in a way, that the, the pleasant aromas that are in this part of this poetry uh, sort, sort of represent the sweetness of their love for one another. Um... Because he smells nice, too. She said, my, my beloved, she loves to call him that, my beloved is a sachet of myrrh between my breasts. He, he's resting his head on her. This is a position that married people would find themselves in, right? Like, resting your head on that part. Um, if, if you do this, if you're someone who's gonna do this, you should be married. You should also be in private. No one needs to see that. Um, but from this position where they're laying together on this couch, uh, she's also smelling his, his pleasant fragrance. And, uh, and, you know, myrrh is supposed to smell nice. It's one of the things that the wise men brought for Jesus as a gift. Um, he, he also wants to, to uh, be the best that he could be for her, for her to enjoy him as much as she could when they're together. And then she says something great. This is um, she says, my beloved is to me a, a cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyard of En Engedi en is an oasis. So you can actually still go there today. It exists. It's an oasis on the western bank of the Dead Sea, and its surrounding is just desolate. Like, it's desert. It's kind of like the movies, where it's, like, desert, and it's barren, empty wasteland, and then, like, as far as the eye can see, and then you see... You know the oasis and it's like this paradise like that's what engedi is uh it has the trees it has a waterfall it has a stream it has these these nice flowers in it it's just like this really beautiful place surrounded by like all this kind of um you know death like the death of the desert um and so like if if you're there like if you were wandering around and you're in that barren wasteland and you see engedi like, that is, like, the, your salvation, you know? Like, water's the source of life in the desert. You go there, and it's this beautiful, amazing place. Like, this is how he makes her feel. He's like, when I'm with you, it feels like I'm in, in, in Getty, you know? It feels like I feel safe, I feel secure, I want to be there. Um, what do you think he does to make her feel that way? I mean, we're gonna see some more of it today, but I think, like we all kind of know the things. I think we know some of the things that he's not doing that would, you know, keep her from feeling this way. Like he's not—he's not neglecting her or or taking advantage of her or uh, taking her for granted. He's—he's um, he's giving her plenty of reasons to feel this secure and this at peace with him. Uh, the husbands in the room. How do you think you're doing at making your wife feel uh, secure and at peace with you? All right. Continuing in verse 15. He says this, he says behold you are beautiful my love. Behold you are beautiful, your eyes are doves. And she says behold you are beautiful my beloved, truly delightful. Our couch is green, the beams of our house are cedar, our rafters are pine. Uh, now we get to him uh, expressing his admiration for her. He says, "You're beautiful, you're beautiful. Your eyes are doves." And I don't necessarily think we should read too much like uh, metaphorical reading to every single line of the poem. Uh, like we have a modern association of doves with, like peace. You know, like we have that connection. We don't really have anything that tells us they had that connection when the Song of Songs was written. Um, and so like, we, we just don't know. Like, you know, doves are white, and so he might just be calling her eyes beautiful. Um, maybe, who knows, like she's talking about her, her innocence or her purity. I read a commentator who's talking about like, well, you know, doves are really soft, and so like, oh, your eyes are soft. But I don't know how that's a compliment. Um, I will say this, though. Like, I have no idea if this is, like, the real interpretation of it, but I've heard it, and it's stuck with me, and, and I just, I really like it. So my favorite interpretation is, this could be his way of saying, like, you have eyes for the Lord. Like, your eyes are set on God. Um, because your, your eyes are doves. Where, where do doves fly? Like, they fly up in the heavens, Right? Which is where we associate God with being. And then we know God is everywhere, but like no one else is in the heavens. Like we're not up there. So, like, you know, they're up in the heavens where God is. Uh, A dove was used by Noah at the ark to confirm God's promise that the waters were receding. And then much later from this, and so the author of the Song of Songs wouldn't have had this in mind but the holy spirit writes the bible through people and so he might have just kind of slipped this in at, at the baptism of jesus the holy spirit descends on jesus like a dove and so you know maybe god was just preparing us to to have that association later and and this is uh, a way of just saying that you know you you have your eyes set on god and i really love that about you that's what i choose to think you know do with that what you will it might just be your eyes are, are beautiful in any case, she responds, and we're going to talk about this more in just a minute, but, uh, because she's already done this a, a few times, and we're only in chapter one, and she's going to do it a few more, um, but when he says something, she will say something very similar right back to him. And so he says, you're beautiful, and she goes, you're beautiful. It kind of feels like the, that uh, like teenage love that, or just like totally uh, like, you hang up. No, you hang up. You know, like... I love you more. No, I love you more. Like it kind of feels like that. This is more mature than that, uh, but they still have that. You know, they're they're not ashamed to to speak like that with each other, and um, and so and she says, "Our our couch is green. The beams are cedar. The rafters are pine." She is describing. They're outside. They're out in nature. They're out among the trees. They're they're sitting in the grass, and uh, and she's kind of describing it as a home. And so this is not a pop song reference. I said last week there might be a lot of those. There's none today. Look at that. Uh, but this is a different song. It's kind of a folksy one from 2009. The song is called Home. And it has the line that says, uh, home is wherever I'm with you. And, and I think that that is a bit of what she's expressing here. Like, we're out in nature. We're, like, gone. It's, it feels like home to me because I'm with you, because we're together. This is our home. Uh, Just just the level of comfort that they have with one another is a a really beautiful thing. Uh, Moving into chapter two, uh, verse one says this. Still her speaking. I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. She says, as an apple tree among the trees of the forest, so is my beloved among the young men. With great delight, I sat in his shadow, and his fruit was sweet to my taste. He brought me to the banqueting house, and his banner over me was love. Sustain me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am sick with love. His left hand is under my head, and his right hand embraces me. This is similar to chapter one, where we read her saying, I am dark but lovely. Don't look on me because of my darkness. She's Got insecurity about not matching up to a common beauty standard in their culture at that time, um, and now she's sharing a bit of her insecurity about her value, uh, and like her self-esteem is not in the dirt. She's not like oh, I'm a piece of garbage, like no one likes. She's not that. Um, she does call herself a, a rose and a lily, but but a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. Um, these are common flowers. Uh, they're, they're beautiful, but you pick one and there's thousands others just like it all around you. And that's how she's seeing herself. Now listen to how he responds. He says, as a lily among brambles, so is my love among the young women. He's so good at this. Uh, just like how he responded the first time, she said she's, uh, she's dark. I love that he doesn't say that you're wrong. You know, you're not dark, like, there's people way darker out there than you. Like, he doesn't start talking about that. It, he doesn't tell her she's wrong. He doesn't say her feelings are wrong. That's how she feels. He says, well, I'm going to tell you how I feel. Uh, I compare you to a mare among Pharaoh's chariots. You are someone who can catch anyone's attention. That's how beautiful you are. Uh, here, It's kind of the same thing. He doesn't address her like she feels so so calm and he doesn't say, well, you shouldn't feel like that. You're not a lily, you're an orchid or like some other rare flower. I don't know what rare flowers are, but uh, I Googled it and orchid came up. He he says, okay, you're a lily, but you're a lily among brambles. Uh, That's what all the other women are compared to you. That's how I see you. That's how I feel about you. I don't have eyes for anyone else. It's like, that's how rare you are. In a field of brambles, you're the lily. And, and that, that's my feelings. Guys, take notes, all right? Like, that's pretty good, you know? Uh, th- this is the kind of stuff that makes her feel so secure with him because again she she responds to this, and she gives a very similar compliment right back at him he go, she goes you 're an apple tree among all these other just kind of normal trees out there that aren 't growing really delicious fruit, like you 're the best tree that there is you know she she kind of takes the way that he 's communicating to her, and she she turns it back to him and uh, it 's not just the words that what he says it 's also what he does so verse four. Uh, he brought me to a banqueting house and his banner over me was love. This is one of my favorite verses in Song of Songs. Uh, it's, it's not my favorite, but this is like really high up there because um, this is, you know, she's describing they're going out somewhere in public together. And really, until now, we've just kind of seen them private together. Um, so they're in some public setting together and they're, he, he brings her with her, uh, brings her with him And she uses this military imagery here of this banner. And in ancient warfare, uh, you know, a little bit more so than now, it was very up close and personal. And so, like, when the armies met, when they mingled, it very quickly devolved into, like, chaos and confusion, and you can't really tell who is where, and you get turned around. And so what they did is they had banners. They had the flag on a tall pole so that from, you know, wherever you are, you can see it. And, And when you get confused and turned around, and it's chaotic, and you're not sure, you know, what place is safe for you to go. You see that, and you go, that's where I belong. That's where my people are. That's where I can find safety. That's where I should go, and that's where you go, and you, you kind of regroup yourself. Uh, When, when she goes out with him, he's raising this banner over her to give her the sense of belonging, you're with me. He's attentive to her. Like, he's not going and, like, kind of leaving her on her own to go talk with his buddies. He's not, like, going to meet new people. He's not kind of forgetting that she's there and he'll find her later. Like, he doesn't do any of that. Um, even in this public place, his, his focus is on her. He's attentive to her. Uh, I like weddings. I don't love Going to weddings, and it has nothing to do with like, the people who are in it for like if I 've been to your wedding, I, I'm sure it was like the best wedding I've ever been to. But I in like certain settings, I can be a little socially awkward, and maybe I lack awareness and I 'm always that way. You can tell me later. Um, but when, when I'm here, like I'm not that shy, like this is a setting where I, I feel comfortable in and I know I'm supposed to meet people, and like I have no problem like talking with new people. Uh, on Sundays, I love it. Um, But at a wedding, I don't know what it is. I don't like meeting new people. I don't like trying to talk to new people. Like if I'm sitting at a table and there's just like no one that I know, that's the worst thing you could do to me. Just don't invite me to the wedding. Um, My wife, Megan, she knows this about me and she's very similar. And so like we're a good fit for each other that way. Uh, Let me tell you, if I was at a wedding with her, and she left me to like go talk with some friends or like meet some people or just sh- and, and not be my safety net. I would be very upset with her, and she would be hearing about it on the way home. Uh, this verse always makes me think of those kinds of situations or settings, and i 've always tried to be mindful because I know that she 's that way too and, and I think that I have been mindful like i don 't think that i 've ignored or abandoned her in in a public setting like that. Private, yeah, but no, I'm just kidding. Uh, Anyways, we see like a couple things that are happening here. He says something that makes her feel uh, really valued, uh, speaks to how he values her, and she says something in response about how much she values him. And uh, he does this thing, he's done this thing where he's raised his banner over her and she, given her the sense of belonging and safety when they're out together. Uh, and, and they become intimate together. Um, and she's like excited for it. She's excited to give herself to him uh, in, you know, in a physical way. And that's the second part of verse three. Uh, his his fruit was sweet to my taste. The, the commentaries are all pretty much clear on this that like this is describing um, sexual intimacy. And you know what I think verse four is. So they're they're having this time and this moment together. She's talking, and then in verse four, I think that her mind is going back to remembering. I mean, this is how this guy treats me. This is whether it was earlier that day or some earlier that week, but. That's something that's in her mind as they're engaging in this physical intimacy. Like the emotional part of it matters so much to her and helps her to, to want to give herself to him as, as much as she can. And then, you know, verse five, she's, it feels like exaggeration. Like, I'm sick with love. I'm weak. I'm just like, ah, like, uh. like that's how love songs go. You just like over exaggerate. But it is like they're nice things to say. And then, uh, and then verse six, it just ends in this, this close embrace where they're together. Uh, what I want you to notice here, and this is, a, this is just kind of a broad principle, but what I want you to notice is what you sow into your marriage is what you get to reap from it. What you put in is what you get out. And this is true not just in marriage, Um, and, and, you know, everyone take notes on this, not just men, men, women, everyone take notes on this. It's such an important principle. The best way for you to get uh, more attention and care and attentiveness from your spouse is to increase the intention and the care and the attentiveness you give to them. Uh, The best way for you to get more grace from your spouse is to give them more grace. When you, uh, when you start more and more setting your interests aside and sacrificing to serve your, your spouse, that's when you start to see they want to be doing that for you as well. And this is not like a guarantee. This is not like a formula that if you do, that, it's always going to work out. And uh, this, Because it could quickly become like self-serving, I'm doing this to get this. Um, it's not like a, a guarantee, but it does work. It works... Best if, if both people in this relationship are, are Christians or followers of Jesus, they have that in common. Um, even if, if only one of you, even if none of you, like this is a principle that'll work. And what I will guarantee is that this works much better than being uh, passive aggressive and like withdrawing and withholding and, and maybe like needling right? Giving, giving out these little punishments because the person isn't acting in the way or showing what, what you want to see from them. And so you start giving them these little punishments in hopes that they're going to wake up to it and, uh, and, and change. That's a really good way to make things worse. And uh, one of the reasons for that is everyone is better at seeing flaws in other people than we are at seeing flaws in ourselves. And when you're married, and you live together with this person, and you're together for years and years, no one knows how much you suck more than the person you're married to. Like, they know all your stuff. And I'm not saying that you're all terrible, but there are parts of you that need to be sanctified, and they know what those things are. Um, and they they see you do these things and there are things that you do that drive them crazy and you're very aware of that, but what you're less aware of is your own stuff that's driving them crazy. But they're very aware of that. And so what ends up happening is if you're just taking all this stuff in and you get quietly upset and you grow bitter and you just kind of passively try to punish them in all these ways to get them to shape up, all it's gonna do is make them more upset at you because they see all the things that you've done wrong and now you're adding to it and they're gonna, they're gonna start trying to punish you back and this creates what we call a, a negative feedback loop where it just gets worse and worse, it grows bigger and bigger, and it never gets better. Uh, what it takes to fix it is for one person to go first and to show humility and repentance. Repentance one person to go first and say, "Um, I'm sorry. I'm wrong about these things. I shouldn't be doing these things. Will you forgive me? I want to change. I want us to change. And actually start communicating openly. Good communication covers a multitude of problems in any relationship. Like It's just better to be clear and be direct and actually bring the things up and not allow them to kind of fester and just get mad at the other person because they're not noticing what you want them to notice. What you sow is what you reap. If you sow into your marriage your own humility, your own repentance, that's the best way to get from that person their humility and their repentance. And you can actually see some real change. As much as you're able, it is always, always, always best to lead in marriage, in your relationship with your kids, your, your parents, your family, brothers, sisters, friends, coworkers, it's always best to lead with patience and understanding and grace and sew those things in. And remember, grace is undeserved. Grace is much harder to give than people think it is if you're just kind of like using the word. like Grace means undeserved. Grace means uh, I'm treating you better than the way you've treated me. I'm giving more to you than you're giving to me, right? Sewing that into your relationship, sewing that into your marriage, uh, that has the best chance of working and improving your marriage and helping you grow together. It doesn't always work. And so love does not always look like uh, endless patience, endless grace and endless chances um, when it, it doesn't result in change, and you're being clear and you're communicating and it doesn't result in any change, love doesn't look like I'm going to keep going down that road, I'm going to keep doing these things, um, because there does come a point where it, it's unloving to allow the bad behavior to continue without any real consequences. And you're just going to let this person be a terrible husband, a terrible wife. You're going to let them be a terrible mom or a terrible dad. You uh, say, I, I can't just let you keep doing this, and, and there be no consequences about it. Um, in, in marriage and, and in all relationships, I mean, this is what we get from God. This is what we see from God, where he, he is super patient with us. He has so much grace for us, but he also disciplines those who he loves, there comes a point when it's necessary for there to be an imposed consequence. I've spoken to, uh, to, to recovering addicts, and they just kind of stuck out with me. Um, I, I've had conversations with, with a couple recovering addicts who said something very similar, where uh, the thing that finally triggered for them Uh, real self-reflection and humility and, like, surrender to, like, I'm not going to just try and do little fixes. I'm not just going to try and manage my addiction. Like, I need to get rid of this. I need real help. I need, like, nothing I've been doing is working. And it really sets them on the path of recovery. The thing that's triggered that for some of these guys was uh, when the family member who's always there for them, usually mom, Uh, But when the family member who's always there for them, who's always taking them in, who's always giving them chances, who's always helping them out, who's always there, when that person finally said, I can't watch you do this anymore. So you can't be in my home. I'm not giving you money. I'm not giving you help. Uh, You can't call me until something really changes. And this comes after, for these people, this, this came after years of grace, years of patience, years of forgiveness and prayer and grief and broken promises and getting lied to and being used. And the person loved them through all that and loves them still, but they now have to make them know just how serious this is. It can't continue like this. The point of discipline, the point of like a real consequence coming in, it's not to cause hurt and it's not to punish, even though it does hurt. It hurts to hear that. But the purpose of it is to to make us see that we need to do better, that we need to change. It's not all right for things to continue the way that they are. But again, we don't. we don't jump to it, and, and it's not what we start with, right? We lead with grace, and we pray that that works first. Uh, in in marriage, you don't jump to like an ultimatum about some like really big thing. Uh, if if it's like a, a like a new problem or kind of a relatively small problem, like it needs to grow and get to a point where like, you, you've tried it. You've tried patience and grace and forgiveness and, and all those things, and it's not... like If there's physical abuse, then yes, you jump to separation because you need to be safe. Um, but like, short of something sort of extreme like that, uh, we, we don't jump to that, and, and you see, I'm going to sow into my marriage as best I can, all the grace that I can, and I want to see what comes from that. And after some time, if there's no change, that's where you see consequence. Maybe it's separation. Maybe it is divorce. The, the Bible does permit divorce, but it also treats it like a tragedy. It treats it like a really big deal. And therefore, it limits the cases in which it is allowed. And what we see is that it's allowed in, in cases of adultery and in cases of abandonment. Uh, and and I believe that um, abuse falls under uh, the abandonment category. And if you have more questions about that or you want clarification, like, always available to talk. We can talk later. You can email me. Um, but we're going to move on. We're going to go back to the song. That's our principle. What you put in is what you're getting out. We see them doing that in a really positive and great way. And, and that's what we want to see in our marriages and our, our, our relationships. We don't want to create the negative feedback loop and and silently punish and wonder why isn't anything getting better? It's because you need humility. You need repentance. You need to sow grace into your marriage, into your relationship. Back to the song, the last verse that we're looking at for today, verse seven. After this great sort of uh, description of their, their love together, including that physical love, she says this, I adjure you, O daughters of Jerusalem, by the gazelles or the does of the field, that you not stir up or awaken love until it pleases. This is where, and she does this a few times throughout the song, but she gives a strong caution to the young women who are not married yet not to rush into it, uh, but to take their time and wait until it's right. And that expression by the gazelles or the does of the field, um, it seems to be like a poetic way to reference the name of God in like the Hebrew and like, probably none of us know Hebrew. I know I don't. I have to read commentaries. There are smart people who know it, and that's what they say. was like a poetic way to uh, point. So she's adjuring them in the name of the Lord in like this kind of poetic way. Don't rush into this. Um, and the warning comes in like a really timely place because she just described how much she enjoys and how beautiful a thing and how great is this physical love that they share together, and so the young women who are hearing her speak, who are reading the song, they might look at that and go, well, I want that. That sounds great. This, this is like, you know, girls dream about their wedding, like she's, fan- like, about the, the romance and the, the connection, like, I want that. That sounds so great. And they might be so focused on the outcome that they want that is this really good thing that they haven't paid close enough attention to some of the other things that she's mentioned. About what contributes to this being such a good thing. Things like, you know, he has a great reputation around his character, and and other people approve of this relationship. They've given their blessing. They say, This is is great that you guys are together. You found each other. Right? That outside perspective is helping them. Uh, he's, He's earned her trust. You see the way that they are together and how he makes her feel secure. And one of the best and most important steps you take in making each other feel secure in your relationship is getting married. Because what you're doing when you get married is you're making a vow that says no matter how bad things get, I'm not going to leave you. I will be with you and I will be for you through it all no matter what. And it's not like a promise that you made in a back room that if you break it like no one really knows about it. You're making the promise in front of your, your family and your closest friends and, and in front of God. So like you're kind of putting your name on the line. You're putting a lot into this to say like this is the commitment that I'm making. That's a great reassurance. People who say like why do we need to get a piece of paper to know we love each other? Because If you're not willing to take that step, you're just making it super easy for yourself to leave anytime, with like no trouble at all. You just disappear. You can't just disappear from a marriage. Like there are consequences, and people are going to know about it, and and all these things. Um, This this promise gives that security within this commitment. And that's what makes it safe to be, to be vulnerable, to let yourself be fully known by this person and know they're, they're not going to leave. It's within the context of all that, of their, their preparation uh, before they got married and how they are in this relationship and the commitment they've made, it's within all that context that the love that she describes is such a beautiful thing, such an enjoyable thing, the, the physical Love that they share with one another is such a good thing. Outside of that context, doing this would have the potential to be incredibly destructive. Uh, There there are physical consequences we know about sex, like diseases and and pregnancies that you don't plan for or prepare for. Uh, But sex is not just a physical thing. It's not just about the physical consequences. Uh, The Bible uses the language in talking about sex that that your souls are, are being mingled together and becoming one. But God created it for marriage and he says the two shall become one flesh. That's one in body, one in mind, one in spirit being knit together with this person being bonded together with this person. And if you're bonding yourself to someone in a relationship that's not permanent, and it's not with one person, but it's with many, that does create waves of emotional damage and spiritual damage that some of it you're not even going to see until much later. Like the, wor- the way that our world thinks about sex, that it's like this inalienable right for anyone to have, as long as there's consent, like that's the only qualifier. As long as there's consent, it's fine no matter what, and it could be as casual as you want, and um, there should be no such thing as consequences. Like that's just a childish way to think about anything. Like I should be able to do what I want without any consequence. Like you're never free from the consequences of your actions, and there are consequences to this. Um, it's it's kind of like fire, where fire is this amazing gift and super useful when it's in the right context, right? When it's in the fireplace, it's on the burner on your stove, it's in your furnace, it's in your car engine. Like It makes our lives great. It's, it's a really great thing. When it's not confined to that context, if it escapes, it can kill you. Like It can burn everything down. Like, things are, are made to be uh, in a certain way in accordance with God's design, and sex is no different. It's great in the right context. That context is the commitment of marriage. Mutual commitment to one another, exclusivity with one another, becoming one together with this person. Outside of that, what you're going to end up doing is, uh, is, is numbing yourself, And hurting your ability to connect emotionally or spiritually with another person through this act. Uh, You can damage future relationships. You could be creating future insecurities for the person that you do eventually marry by what you're doing today. Uh, You could be hurting them, and you don't even think of it that way. Uh, You could be getting your feelings hurt, or the person that you're with could be, because... It's not just a physical thing, it is also an emotional and spiritual thing, so someone's going to become attached through it, and then because it's not permanent, or because you go to someone else, or they go to someone else, that causes this emotional anguish that no one needs to be experiencing. You know, what we do is so much in, like, dating, if it moves in this way, it's just like divorce practice, like, the ripping apart, like, it hurts. Like, it's, it's not a good thing. You're going to ruin your understanding of sex because it's, it's, it's becoming about uh, your, your own pleasure and your own experience and what you get out of it instead of this, this is a way for me to uh, express my love to the person who I love the most. Like, it's about, it's about them, and, and they're making it about me, and, and that's what it's supposed to be. And, and it can quickly become such a selfish thing. It's all about yourself. Don't rush into it. Be wise about it. Marriage is meant to be permanent. And mingling yourself together with another person's soul is, it, it is a big deal. Now, that's as far as we're going in the song today, and what I haven't talked about yet is how we see uh, Jesus' love for us in the gospel through the things that we've just read, although maybe you started to connect some of the dots yourself, and so, um, so you know, we'll start with uh, what you sow is what you reap, what you put in is what you get out. I said the, the only way to break the negative feedback loop is for, for one of the people who are in this situation to go first and to humble themselves, and to repent. And that is true, in a sense. But if you're a follower of Jesus, if your faith is in him, and you've, you've given your life to him, all your hope is in him, you're a follower of Jesus, you don't even have the option of going first. Because Jesus is the one who goes first. If you know Jesus, if you're his, you know and you've experienced Jesus leading with grace in your life. That's how you become a Christian, by his grace, by the gift of his love for you when you're undeserving, when you're a sinner, when you're selfish and and you don't care about God, you don't care about listening to God, you don't care about showing gratitude to God for any of the things that he's given you or done in your life. you, when, you were, when you were guilty and carrying the burden of your guilt, that is when Jesus loved you. That's when he went to the cross for you, to stand in your place. That's when Jesus shed his blood for the forgiveness of your sins. The wages of sin is death. Jesus died on the cross in your place. He died the death that you and I deserve so that he could give us the life that we don't. But he does that because he loves you, right? Jesus on the cross that 's Jesus giving himself for you it's where he establishes the covenant of grace and and marriage is a covenant and a covenant is a is a commitment uh mutually agree it's a little bit like a contract, but it has much um Uh, deeper and and heavier connotation, like the, the consequences of breaking covenant are much more severe. Jesus makes that covenant of grace with you. He says, I'm gonna love you, I'm gonna forgive you, I'm gonna save you, I'm gonna do all these things for you. I want you to trust me. It's like, I don't need you to be good enough. I don't need you to perform. I don't need you to earn it. None of those things. I just need you to trust me. We give him our faith. He gives that full commitment to us. I will never leave you. I'll never abandon you. I'll never forsake you. If you would humble yourself, repent, and put your faith in Jesus. Jesus is the one who went first for you. He sows grace into your life so that grace would grow in you and you would be able to then extend it to others. This is why marriages need Jesus. It's like such an unfair and ineffective expectation for your spouse to be the one who keeps your like, tank of grace filled up that you need them because they're pouring so much into me. I have enough to give to them. I have enough to give to other people. Um, Like people, God didn't make people to fulfill that for you. Um, At least not all the time. Like we can pour into each other, but we can't do it the way that Jesus does it. We can't do it the way that we really need it to be done. And if that's your only source, The tank over time is just going to get lower and lower and lower, and you're going to have less patience, less forgiveness, less gentleness. Jesus keeps the tank filled up. Every time you go to to spend time with Jesus, you hear his word, you see what he's done for you, you, you pray, you speak with him, you're reminded of his grace, you're filled all the way up. He's pouring all of it into you so that you have enough for everything that you need in your life. Are you filling your tank up with Jesus? Is that the source for you, for you to have that that energy and that grace and that compassion to give to the people around you? If it's not, if it's not, what you do is, you don't give people grace, you give people what they give to you. If you're being nice to me, I'll be nice to you, but if you snap at me, I'm going to snap at you. And I'm not going to feel bad about it because you deserve it. But it's only going to make things worse. It's not going to make things better. It's not going to improve your relationship. You need Jesus so that you don't snap back. You say, you need some time. Come find me when you're all right. I love you. That's going to make them feel way worse than if you snap at them. And Then they're going to come back. What you sow is what you reap. Because Jesus has given Himself for us, we are now able to give more and more of ourselves to Him and to the people around us in the way that Jesus has. He's done everything to help us want to do that. Just like the, the woman in the song compares her beloved to the cluster of henna blossoms in the vineyards of Engedi, this beautiful oasis, this source of life. Jesus. Jesus is your oasis. And like the barren desolation of the world around you and your life that's giving you nothing, like the beauty of his grace, the beauty of his love that he gives you is so sustaining. It's so invigorating. His banner over her was love. Jesus raises his banner over us. It's the banner of the cross. He says, I want you to be with me. You have a place of belonging with me. I'm never gonna leave your side. And he's with us. Jesus is worthy of giving ourselves to. And what that means is I'm letting go of my own personal will and what I want to do and how I want to live. And I'm going to embrace his will. I'm going to listen to what he says. This is how you should live. This is what your purpose is. This is what you give yourself to. And it means letting go of my efforts to be good enough. I I can't be good enough. I can't save myself. I need Jesus. I need his grace. So I'm going to put all my confidence in him for that this is how jesus works in your marriage in all your relationships like faith is practical but it all comes from the gospel it all comes from your faith in jesus your connection to him your your relationship with him that's where it starts and that's what's most important and so if you have that connection make sure that you're going there often right you have this amazing thing make sure you're going to him often and if you don't, when I mean, Jesus' arms are open for you, Jesus invites you, he wants you to, to make the decision and say, you know what? I can't do this myself. I can't be good enough. I see everything that Jesus is and does and offers, and, and I, I want that. Jesus, would you forgive me? and put your faith in him. You could do that. You could do that today. You could do that tonight. You could do that this week. If you are struggling with taking that step, I hope that you would find someone to talk through about that with. You could talk with us, and then you'll see, and you'll experience just how good Jesus is, how good it is to be loved and forgiven by him. Let me pray for us.